It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. It's been nearly 10 years now of Medicare and Medicaid audits, and still auditors continue to get it wrong. We'll examine this recurring issue when Nicole Emanuel joins us later in the broadcast to report our lead story. Also on the rundown, healthcare attorney David Glazer has another example of risky business, plus he's going to answer your questions from last week. Christy Potter reports on a major audit finding, discrepancies in secondary diagnosis assignment on outpatient claims. United Healthcare is back in the news, and Monitor Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell has an update on the story the Rack Monitor broke in December. And Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday Listener Survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Today, I want to talk about the new changes to the PEPR, the quarterly report that IPPS hospitals get that often leads to confusion and consternation. This quarter, they added two new reports. A little later, you're going to hear from Tim Powell about United Healthcare's plan to downgrade facility billing of ED visits. But Medicare is also going to put some pressure on hospitals by adding to the PEPR a report on the use of 99285 the second highest ED code with only critical care above it. Once again, they're gonna provide a 20th and 80th percentile to allow hospitals to compare their use of the code to others. But as I described in my December article on the new United Healthcare downgrading ploy, there are no standard guidelines for the use of ED facility codes. So it's really unclear how an auditor will ever be able to determine if a hospital is coding properly or not. The other new report they added was Medicare spending per beneficiary. For this report, they look at a hospital's overall spending on almost every inpatient admission starting three days prior to admission and ending 30 days after discharge. They then break the data down by when the expenses were incurred prior, during, or after the admission, and where it was spent on hospital, nursing home, home care, DME, outpatient services, hospice, or physician fees. But unlike every other measure in the PEPR, this one only compares to the national averages, limiting its usefulness. And as with every other report, they will not tell you who your patients were, which ones spent the most, or contributed to any area where you seem to be higher than the average. But this high-speed train moving from volume to value seems to be unstoppable, so knowing where you are may help. But here's the problem. The data presented is from calendar year 2016 and won't be updated until 2019, so it's terribly old data. So maybe just use this data for interest, but not for actual process change. I also want to add something to my reporting on the new national coverage determination for defibrillators. As I reported last week, the changes to the NCD were effective immediately, but Kim Johnson from Honor Health in Arizona contacted me about that. You see, even though the effective date was February 15th, the implementation date has not yet been set. 
What does that mean? Well, in essence, you're technically required to follow the new NCD, but if you follow the new NCD, the contractors may deny your claim because their system changes have not yet been implemented to allow them to properly process the claim. Kim's advice, which seems wise, is to continue to follow the old NCD for now, which means you still have to report to the registry and add the QR modifier to the claim until we get word from CMS of the date the MACs will be ready to process claims under the new rules. The other option is to follow the new rules and hold all your claims until the MACs are ready and then go ahead and release them. And I must ask, why does CMS make things so darn complicated? Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of our One Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics in the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent, Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And um, I was out in California last week. It's good to be back with Monitor Monday and all of our folks here. I have a couple of quick updates this morning. The first update has to do with the MIPS program and physical occupational speech language pathologists who currently are not eligible reporters under the MIPS program. CMS recently put out an announcement that they want to engage in a study to get a better understanding of the administrative burdens associated with the MIPS program. So according to CMS's announcement, in addition to all of those folks that are MIPS-eligible clinicians, primarily physicians and non-physician practitioners, the study's now open to those folks that were previously not eligible or can't eligible to participate this year, such as PT, OT, and speech. So during the study period, which begins in April and goes through March of 2009, CMS is going to evaluate workflows, data collection methods, and explore the challenges faced by clinicians in collecting and reporting data to MIPS. So applications are being included and surveys are being accepted through March 23rd. So contact MIPS underscore study at ABTASSOC.com. Then my second update has to do with CMS issuing details on the supervised exercise therapy for peripheral artery disease. And according to CMS, this program has been eligible since May of 2017, but only recently have they put forward articles on how this can be implemented in physician's office. So the SET program covers up to 36 30- to 60-minute sessions over a 12-week program. The sessions must be conducted in a physician's office or outpatient facility and delivered by qualified auxiliary personnel, including physical therapists, nurses, and exercise physiologists. To receive coverage for this program, Medicare beneficiaries with PAD must have a face-to-face visit with the physician and be referred for the program. So this might be another opportunity for those that are providing physical therapy or for physician's office that have PTs, exercise physiologists available. Then my third update, the much-awaited summary on the therapy cap. The cap's dead, long live the cap, so to speak. So here is the five tips in the post-cap era. So the, the elimination of the hard cap, which is there was no therapy above the cap, was retroactive to January 1st of 2018. 
there is now a threshold at $2,010, which was the old cap amount that was delivered to us in the Medicare Physician Fee Schedule final rule. So above that threshold, a KX modifier is necessary for PT and speech-language pathology combined and then occupational therapy separately. And the all thresholds apply to all Part B outpatient therapy services, including those provided by hospital departments. And remember, during the beginning confusion of the year when the law was not in effect, hospital departments were exempted. And stay tuned for further updates on some other items that came as a surprise during that rule. Our poll is brought to us this morning by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. You likely have been receiving in the mail uh, from your MAC a request to be on the alert to participate in their annual MAC satisfaction indicator survey that CMS is doing. And, of course, the MACs want to get good scores on this. They want to keep their contracts. Please click number one if you plan on participating. Click number two if no, you're not going to participate. Three if you're not sure. And four if you're not applicable. Chuck will be back to see how people are going to participate in the survey later in the program. Great. Nancy, thanks very much. That was Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and CEO for Nancy Beckley and Associates. As Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. Boy, what a good survey that is, too. And coming up in about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from David Glazer, Christy Pollard, Timothy Powell, and healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. This is Monday, it's March 12th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. AHIMA's coding webinars offer a timely, flexible solution to keeping pace with the rapid changes happening specific to an outpatient or physician practice setting. Learn from respected subject matter experts who provide practical information and know-how to prepare you for success. Choose to interact during a live presentation or view one of the hundreds of ready-to-access on-demand webinars at your convenience. Upcoming webinars include a day in the life of an emergency department coder, our modifiers impacting your denials, and the defining element of CDI in the physician practice. Browse upcoming webinars and all on-demand webinars at ahima.org events. And we're back, and coming up later in the broadcast, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel is going to report on why, after nearly 10 years, auditors continue to get it wrong. Also, Tim Powell has an update on the story Rack Monitor broke back in December about United Healthcare, and Christy Pollard is standing by to reveal a major audit problem that she and her team have uncovered. Now we check in with healthcare attorney David Glazer, who's reporting on some risky business, but who also has some answers to questions that you raised last week, everyone. David, good morning and welcome. Thank you, Chuck. So I totally should be talking about time-based billing in honor of daylight savings time, but because of the, the segment that Shannon DeConda and I did last week generated so many questions about Modifier 25, I'll do those and we'll do time-based billing next week. So let's dive in. Carol asked, if you're billing for a preventive exam, does that include the review of chronic conditions and renewal of medications? Or would it be appropriate to bill an E&M and use modifier 25? Um, While it's not entirely clear to me from the question, I suspect Carol is asking about Medicare's annual wellness visit. So whether discussing an annual wellness visit or a routine preventive exam, it's important to understand that when a patient has an illness or injury, that's outside the framework of a preventive service or an annual wellness visit. 
it's entirely appropriate to bill for a service when you address a patient's ongoing chronic condition. Um, it's also right to do so and attach a modifier 25. It's very difficult for me to envision a situation where an individual who's eligible for Medicare, either because of their age or their disability status, won't have at least some medical condition meriting an evaluation and management service. It might happen. I haven't run into that person yet. Um, so, you know, you, I guess the bottom line is it's theoretically possible someone won't have a chief complaint, but that's going to be rare. So E&M work can and should be billed with a modifier 25. We also had a question from Shirley about OMM. Um, I believe she's referring to osteopathic manual manipulation, but this is a good example of the peril of using acronyms because I'm not certain. I first wondered if it was OMD, orchestral maneuvers in the dark. Uh, assuming I understand her question properly, I'm not well equipped to answer it. The only insight I can offer is that when using modifier 25, you want to know that the service in question is something that's generally billable and is identifiable in the sense that the work has not already been bundled into the other code for which you're billing. Um, so now I struggle with Shirley's question in part because I don't know enough about the routine billing for osteopathic manipulation. Finally, Dr. Hirsch had an interesting observation about asking patients to return on another day. He noted that at times he might have a patient return for a procedure because it would cause the clinic to run more smoothly, or there might be a medical reason to wait. As usual, Dr. Hirsch's points are good. However, when it comes to considering the billing, if I thought the service would be bundled when performed on the same day, I would be hesitant to submit a claim for the two services separately merely because the patient was asked to return on another day. In most of these situations, I would expect the service to be properly billable with a modifier 25. In that case, separating the visits is of no billing consequence. If the services do bundle, however, I wouldn't bill them separately simply because they were temporally separated for someone's convenience. The bottom line is that you can separate your billing practice from your convenience practice. You may handle the issue differently in each perspective. So, Chuck, I think it was the Carpenters, or as Clark would point out, Neil Sadaka, who said that if you break it up improperly, there may be hard time to do. Think of all that we've been through, breaking up is hard to do. I think it's a song that isn't necessarily loved by all, but the kind of weird pun fits. Thanks, David. That was very punny. Uh, that was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in a law firm of Fredericks the Byron in downtown Minneapolis, where the temperature now is about 25 degrees. Last Thursday, senior healthcare consultant Christy Pollock reported in the Rack Monitor E News about a major auditing issue that she and her team had uncovered. Here now with more on this developing story is the aforementioned Christy Pollock. Good morning, Christy. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Chuck. Thank you for having me today. Well, I've been conducting coding audits over the last 15 years, and I would say the number one audit variance that we face on outpatient claims is related to secondary diagnosis coding. The most controversial area is probably coding of secondary conditions to meet medical necessity. And since my Rack Monitor article ran last week, I've received correspondence from some readers specifically about that issue. Medical necessity is probably the number one reason for overcoding of diagnoses on outpatient and physician claims. And I wish it was as simple as saying just follow the guidelines, but there's a lot more to it. 
When the UBO4 was introduced a little over 10 years ago, hospitals were introduced to three new diagnosis fields for reason for visit. These fields allow for reporting up to three diagnoses, which can be used to establish medical necessity while still following the coding guidelines. For example, if a patient came in with chest pain and had a cardiac workup only to find that the final diagnosis was anxiety, chest pain could be coded as a reason for visit with anxiety as the final diagnosis and medical necessity criteria would be met while still following coding guidelines. Here's the problem, though. The use of those reason for visit fields by payers is optional, and it seems that many payers have decided not to use them. And that leaves hospitals in a pickle because tests have been ordered for symptoms that are not listed within the final diagnoses. And on the PROFI side, there isn't a reason for a visit field on the 1500 form. So what are we supposed to do? Well, I've presented webinars on secondary diagnoses and signs and symptoms coding and performed a lot of coding audits. And my recommendation is to always follow the coding guidelines. Sorry, I'm a rule follower, so I just can't budge on that one. But the pushback from listeners and auditees is that the superfluous diagnoses were added to meet medical necessity. And what we're seeing on audits goes beyond the medical necessity issue. Many coders have been advised to pick up all signs and symptoms to cover medical necessity when they should be reviewing payer policies and escalating medical necessity issues to management. Now, there are times when it seems you need to break a coding guideline in order to get the claim paid, and that's where I advise using caution. AHEMA's standards of ethical coding tell us it is unethical to incorrectly code diagnoses to justify medical necessity. But I also don't think that providers are out there just willy-nilly ordering tests without a valid reason. So how do we proceed when there's a discrepancy between payer policy and coding guidelines? Coding Clinic published a textbook answer for this dilemma in first quarter 2014, and they give step-by-step instructions on how to settle coding disputes with payers. It involves contacting the payer and presenting them with the coding guideline to get the policy changed. If they refuse to change it, you're asked to get their policy in writing. If they refuse to provide the policy in writing, you are to document all communications with the payer, including dates and names of people you spoke with, and make a unique payer policy. That policy should be kept in a permanent file and made available to coders and auditors. I can almost hear some of you screaming at me as I list those steps out, and let me say, as a former coder and coding supervisor myself, I get it. There's a textbook answer, and then there's the real world, but this is an important issue. Coders should be reviewing payer policies and know when a test doesn't meet medical necessity. To accommodate that, managers need to build time into productivity standards to review payer policies, make them available to coders, and train coders to use them. This isn't an issue with a simple answer or solution, but if you haven't been policing your diagnosis coding and comparing medical necessity requirements against coding guidelines, it's time to take a look. Thanks, Christy, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Christy Pollard. Christy is with the Hagen Consulting Group, and you can read her story on the Rack Monitor E-News. United Healthcare is back in the news, and Monitor Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell has an update on the Rack Monitor story that was broke back in December. Good morning, Tim. What's the latest? 
Good morning, Chuck. And I'm going to do uh, some summarization uh, as as I speak, and uh, hopefully, please look at the article that comes out related to this. And maybe Chuck will give me some some time to expand on this uh, in a later rack monitor publication. But effective March 1st, nationwide, United Healthcare uh, will review and possibly adjust or deny facility ED claims that are submitted with a level four, level five evaluation and management code, which facilities submit uh, they have the ability to submit. Uh, appeals or reconsideration requests. The codes that we're talking about include 99284. Usually the presenting problem is of high severity that require urgent evaluation by the physician, but did not pose an immediate significant threat to the life or psychological function of the patient. Emergency departments visit for the evaluation management of the patient, which meet the following three components should be coded with this code. One is a detailed history two is a detailed examination, and three is medical decision-making of moderate complexity. The highest code is 99285, usually presenting problems of high severity that pose an immediate significant threat to the life or psychological function of the patient. Emergency departments visit for evaluation and management of the patient requires three key components within the constraints composed by the urgency of the patient's clinical condition, which include a comprehensive history, comprehensive examination, and a high level of uh, complexity in medical decision-making. The guidelines that go along with this uh, started from CMS, published in 1995 and 1997, are well understood by the industry. Unfortunately, United Healthcare has thrown these rules out of the uh, out of the window, and uh, many of the hospital systems that that uh, have automated coding are based on the 1995 and 1997 guidelines. United Healthcare has decided that it will use instead the Optum EB Claim Analyzer tool to determine appropriate evaluation and management coding levels. Data such as diagnostic testing, comorbidities, and the patient's presenting problem will be considered by the tool. United Healthcare has given some exemptions from this policy, including admissions from the ED, critical care patients, patients less than two years old, certain diagnoses requiring greater than average resources when performed by the ED, patients who die in the ED, and most importantly, facilities whose billing level of four and five does not abnormally deviate from Optum's EDC analyzer tool determination. The Optum 3D analyzer takes the sum of three cost categories and reaching a coding decision. One is standard cost, two is extended cost, and three is patient complexity cost. The EDC analyzer reviews all of the reasons for uh, diagnosis codes and assigns a, a proportional standard cost allocation uh, for each of the patients based on their age and gender. Um, so examples of this would include uh, uh, nursing and ancillary staff time, uh, creation of the medical record, and uh, coding and billing issues. Uh, examples would be a blood pressure check, uh, weakness, uh, uh, seizure, uh, pregnant, fever. So they're looking for these specific diagnosis tools, diagnosis codes, and reaching uh, that part of the determination. Second is extended cost. The EDC analyzer reviews all nine level services of the claim based on diagnosis tests, including laboratory tests, x-ray tests, EKGs, CTs, and MRIs. Finally, uh, the analyzer takes into account the patient complexity cost, the EDC analyzer from Optum reviews all principal and secondary diagnosis codes looking for complicating conditions. So it's looking for specific codes like 
uh, intermittent explosive disorders or other impulsive disorders, just looking for specific diagnosis codes. And based on the results of that, the optum analyzer is going to come up with a new coding that does not necessarily correspond with the coding that you would get based on the 1995 or 1997 guidelines that are currently used by the industry. The first and most obvious conclusion about this change, it'll force hospitals to make sure that the coding for complex ER visits will get the same result using the optum tool as their current coding. This is more than just a coding issue. It's a coding an audit issue. The reviewer compares in a normal audit, the, co the reviewer compares the bill codes to the medical record in addition to the actual bill charges. Getting the bill claims to meet the requirement for the optum tool will mean that the charge master of the facility must include a crosswalk to make sure that the coding from the tool matches the coding from the facility and comes up with the same result that you would get based on the current 1995 or 1997 guidelines. Likely, this will mean that facilities will have to pay to purchase the Optum tool or pay a consultant that has purchased the tool in order to evaluate if they can meet the exception of, of uh, coding within the same guidelines as the Optum tool. This is potentially a large and expensive requirement that will also require large amounts of time for both the IT department of the hospital and patient financial services. This increases the ongoing headache of the revenue cycle of, of each of the facilities as they as they will have to uh, look at other payers who have the same uh, the same issues where they're applying different tools. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Tim. That was Monitor Monday National Correspondent Tim Powell. Why, after nearly 10 years, do Medicare and Medicaid auditors still continue to get it wrong? Well, for answers to that, we check in with Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. I want to discuss an important issue when it comes to RAC audits. Providers ask me all the time, how will you prove that the alleged overpayment is erroneous? Or in other words, how do you show that the underlying claims are compliant? How do these auditors mess up an audit? First, let's debunk the notion that the government is always right. In my experience, the government is rarely right. And auditors are not healthcare providers. Some have gone to college, many have not. Most of them have not gone to medical school. So I've got five main reasons how the auditors get it wrong. Number one, the auditors are simply handed a checklist. The checklists are written by some government employee who most likely is not an attorney. There is no mechanism in place to take the Medicare policies, rules, manuals, and compare it to the checklist. If the checklist is wrong, then the audit results are wrong. Think about how often CMS drafts final rules, or for Medicaid, how often your state changes small technicalities for the Medicaid policies. These audit checklists are not updated every time CMS issues a new final rule. An example, for hospital-based services, there may be a different rate depending on whether the patient is inpatient versus outpatient. Over the last few years, there have been so many changes to this criteria. And over and over, I have seen auditors apply the wrong policy or regulation. They cannot keep up with the constant changes, but an attorney must. The second blunder auditors make is including non-government paid claims in the sample. This is when we have extrapolations. Auditors try to throw out their metaphoric fishing nets to collect some claims on dates of service. Sometimes they choose dates of service of claims that were paid by third-party payors instead of Medicare. 
you've heard of the fruit of the poisonous tree. This makes the audit the fruit of the poisonous audit. An erroneous sample equals an erroneous audit. I've gotten extrapolations thrown out of court because the sample was bad. Number three, the third common blunder found with RAC audits are simple misunderstandings. For example, auditor asks for a patient's chart for data service X. The provider gives the auditor the chart for that data service. But what the auditor is really looking for is the physician's order or prescription that was dated the day or two prior. The provider simply did not give the auditor what he or she wanted because the auditor did not know what to ask for. Now, number four goes to extrapolations. RATSTATS is a computer program that is used to extrapolate. And without going into too much detail, the number of claims in the sample matters to the accuracy of the extrapolation. The more claims reviewed, the better. Also, the error rate contributes heavily to the result. We have been very successful in getting extrapolations thrown out with an extrapolation expert or a statistician. The fifth reason that auditors get it wrong is because of nitpicky, ridiculous items, such as using purple ink instead of blue. Yes, this actually happened to one of my clients. Or the amount of time with the patient is not denoted on the medical record, but the duration is either not relevant or the duration is defined in the CPT code. Electronic signatures, when printed, sometimes are left off, but the document was signed. Because there is little communication between the auditor and the provider, mistakes happen. The moral of the story is appeal all audit results. Thank you. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. I was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner in the law firm at Potomac Law Group, and you can read her story in this Thursday's edition of the Rack Monitor e News. Nancy, let's take a look at the survey results real quickly. All righty, Chuck. Let's see who's going to kick back and tell their Mac what they think of them. On our listeners this morning, 16% say that they are going to complete the survey. 5% no, they're not going to complete the survey. 55% are not sure. And 22% say it's not applicable. Chuck, that was our poll brought to us this morning by our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. Thanks, Nancy, very much. Very interesting poll. That's going to be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Money, and I want to thank you for being with us today. And I want to thank Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Christy Pollard, Tim Powell, and our special guest this morning, healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. And we thank you very much for being with us today. And we look forward to you coming back to Monitor Monday next Monday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you so very much for joining us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.